Hey, hey, collective young adults, what is happening? It's good to see you guys. Are you guys doing well? Yeah? Doing good? Oh, come on. I know you guys are more excited than that. Hey, uh, it is so good. Can we turn on the house lights a pinch? I can't see anybody. Just a little bit. Just a touch. That's better. Um, hey, it is so good to be here tonight with you guys. Um, if you've got a Bible, turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah chapter 5. And while you're turning there, um, I just want to introduce myself. If we have not, oh, there you are. You guys look so good tonight. It's so good to see you all. And if we have not met yet, my name is Nick. I have the immense privilege alongside my beautiful wife and our amazing uh, leadership team each week to do this thing called Collecting Young Adults. And we're just a gathering of young adults who love Jesus and want to love people and just want to make Jesus known to the city of Albuquerque. So each Sunday we gather together and we uh, spend time in the Word, we spend time in worship, and uh, we hang out afterwards. And so if you're turning to Nehemiah chapter 5, if you're there, say, I'm there. Yeah. Nehemiah chapter 5. We've been in a series titled Hunting Giants, and as a church, collectively, we've been going through each week different giants that we're facing in our cultural moment. A few weeks ago, we had worship night, so we weren't able to touch and get to Nehemiah, and to this week, I really felt led to do that. Um, I feel like the, the Lord gave me a word for Nehemiah, and next week, we'll be doing Esther. It's going to be really fun to be reading about that, but this week, I felt, um, I felt a little challenged. I felt a little challenged in a, in a good way and convicted and with what the Lord was sharing with me. And so if you're there, let's read Nehemiah chapter five, verse one. It says this, now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain, gotta eat. Others were saying, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine, taking out loans to eat food. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards, although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews. And though our children are as good as theirs, we're pretty much family, and nothing stronger than family, am I right? Yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people, only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. Verse 9. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Should you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and all the interest you are charging, all of it. One percent, the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then some of the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, in this way, 
May God shake out their house and possessions. Anyone who does not keep this promise, so such a person is shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said amen and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Tonight, we're going to jump into this section of scripture. We're going to talk about it. Before that, uh, I want to pray for us. Is that cool? Yeah? Lord, thank you for tonight, God. Thank you for the opportunity to um, just share from your word. Thank you for the opportunity to just gather together as, as friends and even some of us as strangers. Lord, we lift up tonight. It, it cannot happen without you. I pray that everything said from this stage, Lord, is what you want to communicate. That it's not opinion or rants, but Lord, it's just what you desire to say to these young adults. God, I don't know what people carried walking in this room, walking in this building today, how close they are to you, or how close they feel to you, how far they feel from you, Lord. But I, I pray for my friends who feel far from you tonight, that they may just draw into your presence, that they may just lean into what you're wanting to tell them. Thank you, Lord, for who you are. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Can we give it for Tyler? Killing it on the keys. So good at that. <laughs> Have you been able to remember lately your first job? For those of us who have jobs and are just getting stimmy checks, um, you may think back when I asked that question on your first job. And if uh, you're a normal human being, your first job was probably pretty tough. It was probably working somewhere in fast food or a Hinkle Family Fun Center. Um, does, anybody, does anybody remember it? Does anyone remember? Yes, you guys are OGs. I had friends work at ITS, and they had terrible experiences with our business for a reason. But if you had a first job, and if you remember your first job, it was probably pretty tough. And I know for myself, um, my first job was rough, okay? Uh, my first job was at a trampoline park. Yes, I know. Why would you work at a trampoline park? I don't know, but I did, and I thought 15-year-old Nick um, he thought it would be a good idea to work at a trampoline park, so he did. And my first job was tough, y'all. I was getting paid like $8 an hour, and I cannot tell you what I did for 15 hours a week to deserve $8 an hour pay. I did nothing at this job. My job kind of consisted of this. I'd take a whistle, and I'd bounce around on some trampolines, and if kids were like hanging on something they shouldn't, I'd blow the whistle at them. That's about it. And when you work at a trampoline park, uh, things you see a lot. Okay, you see a lot. You see kids throwing up on trampolines. It's possible, and it's really hard to clean. Let me tell you something. You see people break their legs and their ankles bouncing on trampolines. You have to deal with Karens a lot. God bless them, but you got to deal with it. Working at a trampoline park was tough. And one time, the only shift I ever remember was a 13-hour shift. I took on like four people's shifts. Don't ask me why, I just wanted to. And I don't think this is legal, but I only had 15 minute break for this 13 hour shift and I used it to go get Subway. Life was tough, you guys. I can't believe they, let, they got away with that. But I'm working this 13 hour shift and I'm spending all day at this trampoline park with only 15 minute break to go eat Subway. And um, the shift was ending, we were closing up and I, I will never forget this moment. This moment has scarred me, and I'm going to share it with you for sake of therapy. It's going to be really healing for me to share it with you. So we're closing up for the night, 
and my task was to clean the bathrooms. I, I was told, hey, Nick, uh, you can clean the bathrooms, then you can go home. I've been there for 13 hours, and if you've been in a trampoline park for 13 hours, you want to go home. So I was like, all right, let's go. So I'm going to go clean the bathrooms, and I, of course, hit the men's first. And it was simple, you know, wiping down mirrors, mopping, whatever. But then I make my way to the back stall, and what I laid my eyes on scars me to this day. I open the door to the back stall, and I turn, and I was like, what's that smell? And I look on the floor, and there's a pair of XL men's underwear full of poop, like to the brim, you guys. And like, not just like regular little bit of poop, like dog poop or whatever, like I ate Chipotle three times that day poop. I turn, and have you ever had a moment where you're so perplexed and confused by what's going on, you try to map it on your head, and you try to make sense of what is happening or how did this moment occur? That's what I did, and I'm gonna walk you through it. This is what I believe happened. Somebody, a grown man, most likely, because it was really big underwear, oh goodness, came to the trampoline park, bounced, bounced a little too hard, <laughs> had an accident, on trampolines, which brings up so many more questions. Y'all, coronavirus has made people actually clean stuff. I'm so thankful for it. But back in the day, that probably didn't get cleaned up. So, messed his drawers, bouncing too hard, went to the bathroom, took his underwear off, and then put his pants back on and left the underwear there. I don't know what he did after that. We couldn't find the security footage of the man or whatever. I don't know if he kept bouncing. I don't know if he went home after that. I don't know if he went to the mall. He could have done anything. But we were left to clean up the mess, and I'm sitting there, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying not to look at this pair of undies on the floor that is just decimated. And the thought occurs to me, man, someone should do something about this. And then I made my manager do it, and then I went home and quit the next day. But I don't know why I told that story, actually. Um, yeah, we're going to close up and pray tonight, and then uh, we're just going to go on with it. Just kidding. No, I remember sitting in this stall and just being like, man, someone should really do something about this. And, and all jokes aside, have you ever found yourself in a moment? You read a headline, you see something go on, you're, you're just taken aback by a situation. You think to yourself, man, someone should do something about this. If you're taking notes tonight, that's what we're titling our talk is someone should do something. Someone should do something. I don't know about you, but... I feel information overload. I feel like I see too much, I know too much. It seems like every day there's more things to scroll through, there's more things to refresh, there's more news to understand, there's more breaking headlines. And I feel overwhelmed. Anyone with me? Anyone overwhelmed by the amount of information that is available to them? We have information fatigue. And I actually did research on this this week. And I, and I found this study from 2008 and it said that the average adult U.S. citizen in 2008 was consuming daily 33.4 gigabytes of information, okay? And they said if you lay that out in video format, if you try to watch that amount of information, it takes 22 hours to process that much information in a video. So in 2008, and it's only gone up since then, I can speculate, right? We are processing 22 hours of information a day in a 24-hour day time span. We're only awake if you're sane for like 16 hours, 18 hours of that, unless you're pulling all-nighters. Shout out to UNM. 22 hours of information. In 1980, it was nine gigabytes. It's like a couple minutes worth of information to process. 
We are information overload. There is so much to care about. There's so many things in the news. There's so many things on social media. There's so many things flooding into our brains and our minds and our eyes. Everything matters, it feels like. There's Afghanistan. There's Haiti. There's Hurricane Ida. Now there's Hurricane Nicholas. There's anti-vax, pro-vax. There's presidents. There's politics. There's policies. Who did you vote for? What did I vote for? Now, there's supposedly, there's breaking news today, the manatees in Florida are starving, right? I don't know that. It's something I should care about, supposedly. It feels like everything is begging for our attention to care about. And that's not even touching on things in Albuquerque, in our own personal lives that may impact us. That's not even touching on Albuquerque crime. That's not even touching on Albuquerque homelessness. That's not even touching on things within our city. This is just the world. It seems like everything matters. It seems like everything begs our attention. And so in a world where everything feels inundated, where everything feels overwhelming, you probably ask the question for yourself, someone has to do something. And this weekend as we're commemorating 9-11 on Saturday, 20 years ago that happened, it's insane, I wasn't old enough to even remember it. But when you talked with people who were old enough and were there at Ground Zero, watched on the news, so many people say that when that occurred, they thought to themselves, what's going on? Someone has to do something. And that just comes to mind as it's this weekend. So often we're faced with this question, someone has to do something. But what do you do when everything in the world seems to be falling apart? In your own life, the things within your sphere of influence, you have something to do about. What if you can't single-handedly stop the thing going on in Afghanistan? What if you single-handedly cannot stop the hurricanes? What if you single-handedly cannot fix COVID and now the Delta variant and this other variant? You know, there's more variants. I don't even know that. We single-handedly probably could not fix these situations. But what about moments in our life, things within our sphere of influence that there's something we can do about? I don't know about you, but I'd rather do something about situations going on in my life, things surrounding me, than nothing. And tonight, I, I want to speak to those of us who want things to change, who want to make change happen. I want to speak to those of us who are tired of specific things happening, tired of seeing apathy, and desire change. Those of us who want to make a difference. So if you want to make a difference tonight, whether it's in your school, whether it's in, even in your classroom, whether it's even in your house, whether it's at your job, this sermon is for you. I want to speak to this level of making a difference within the specific environments we're impacting and influencing. And I had us read Nehemiah because I, I sense that Nehemiah is one of these Bible characters who decided to do something about a situation going on in his life. Nehemiah made the option to do something with what he was presented. Instead of doing nothing, instead of being apathetic towards a situation, he decided, I'm one person, but I'm gonna try to make a difference. And here's a little background on Nehemiah. So with Nehemiah, what happened prior to this text is that the Israelites, the Jewish people, they were carried off into captivity about 85 years ago from what we're reading right now. They're carried off into captivity, and then they're given into new captors named the Persians. And these Persians allow the Israelites, a group of them, to go back to their city that was ruined by the Babylonians, that was torn apart, that was burned down, to rebuild their city, rebuild their culture, re get back in touch with who they are. 
So they're given this permission, and we see this in the book of Ezra. It's parallel to Nehemiah. And what we see happen is there's so many issues. It's like a reality TV show soap opera with Israelites going back to Israel. And we see this moment where Nehemiah is made aware after his people return to their city, he's made aware of something that crushes him. We read in chapter 1 that Nehemiah is made aware that the gates and the walls of their city are burnt down. And he's broken at this. You may think, why is this such a big deal? Why does this matter for Nehemiah so much? Well, at this time, walls offered protection. Walls offered a sense of security in a city. To have a wall was to be able to carry on life normally. You didn't have to worry as much about robbers. You didn't have to worry as much about invasions. So to have no walls to your city, it'd be like you going home, taking all the doors off of your house and breaking all your windows. It's not much of a house left, right? And Nehemiah is crushed about this. So he goes to the king, gets special request, takes some PTO, and he goes back and he says, nobody's rebuilding the wall, no, nothing is happening with this, I'm going to be the one to do it. And so he, he steps back into Israel, he goes back to make a difference. And so tonight, I want to break down reading in Nehemiah, reading about this specific section of scripture, and how it can apply to us if you want to make a difference. And so when Nehemiah returns, when there's no walls to your city, there's a whole bigger symptom of the issue. When he goes back, there's people trying to fight them. There's people trying to kill the Israelites. There's people oppressing the poor, as we just read. There's crime is rampant. People aren't sacrificing the temple like they should. Just the small symptom of a greater issue. And I can imagine the way Nehemiah feels is someone has to do something. The way many of us probably feel when we read headlines, when we read things on the news, when we see breaking news, another school shooting, another natural disaster, another person taken by COVID, we think to ourselves, someone has to do something. And I guarantee this is how Nehemiah felt. And so, I want to walk us through this. And the first thing is this. If you want to make a difference, start with what moves you. Here we see in, the, in this section of scripture that the, the poor are being manipulated, the poor are being oppressed, that people are being taken advantage of, people are being put into slavery. And Nehemiah is frustrated about it. I think the gold of this section is in verse 6. It says this. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I was very angry. Can I tell you something, collected young adults? It's okay at times to be upset about things you see. It's okay to be upset. But the difference between anger controlling you, anger causing you to sin, is what you do with the anger you've received a lot of the time. What determines someone's character is how they deal with their anger. Scripture calls this righteous indignation. When you see something that's wrong, when you know Things aren't as they should be, and you're frustrated and upset about it. This is how I imagine Nehemiah feels. But what we do with our anger matters. I love what Ecclesiastes 7, 9 says. It says, do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. See, notice this response Nehemiah gives to his anger. He, he learns of all these terrible things happening. What does he do? Does he, does he lash out on the officials? Does he go rant at them? Does he take his anger out on somebody else? No, it says, I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them. 
Nehemiah sits on his frustration. He doesn't allow his frustration to control him. But the situation, it moves him. It's something that he cares about. And he starts with what matters, people. He doesn't start with the corrupt officials, and maybe he doesn't really like them. Maybe he's frustrated with them. He starts with the people who are being impacted by this frustration. And because he processes it, he can do something about it. He doesn't just virtue signal and post on his story, you should care about this. He doesn't go and tell everybody before going into anything or even thinking about the issue. He processes it. He thinks on it. He sits on it. And I, I just want to say this. That if you want to make a difference, you have to start with what moves you. My friends, there's so much distraction. Like I said, there's so many things to care about. It can feel like everything matters. And then to the point where everything matters, nothing really matters. The point that the things that we can actually make a difference in, we don't really have the time to think about because we're thinking about everything else so much. That the thing that we can actually have influence, the areas of life we can have impact, we're not moved by because we're too concerned with everything. We're too inundated with information. We're so upset about politics and policies and people that truly don't even know who we are. They run our mental landscape that we can't even give our mom the time of day to give her a call or see how she's doing. We're so frustrated and obsessed with maybe the economy and where it's going and we're so inundated with money. We can't even treat baristas at Starbucks kindly because we're so focused on this issue we truly cannot control. I think of so often that if we want to make a difference, we have to start with what moves us. We have to start with the areas and spheres of influence that we care about. Not simply getting distracted by everything going on and all these things that some of them really do matter and less and the others that do and don't. The things that within our lives, they move us. Things we should care about. The second thing is this, if you want to make a difference, you have to realize your influence has impact. Your influence has impact. Verse nine says it like this. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the approach, the approach of our Gentile enemies? So here we are, there's this group of leaders and they're supposed to be set apart. They're supposed to be God's chosen people to make a difference within their world. They're supposed to be different from the rest of everybody else. But instead, what they're doing is they're looking like everybody else. And can I tell you, friend, if you're a follower of Jesus in this room, just like the people of Israel are set apart, just like the people of Israel are called by God, we as the church are called by God as well to be set apart. We as the church are called by God to not just look like the world and everybody else, but to be different. See, the way these leaders go about their life is if their influence has no impact, as if the way they conduct themselves doesn't matter, when the truth is, is that their influence does have impact, that the way they're carrying themselves, the way they treat people matters. I think so often of this that not realizing how much influence you and I carry is very dangerous. Not realizing how much you impact people. I don't care how many followers you may or may not have. I can tell you this, you have influence. You, each person in this room, in your own sphere of influence, are impacting people. People are looking up to you. Not only that, if you're a follower of Jesus, people are looking twice as much. 
If you're a follower of Jesus, people are waiting for a reason. There's so many individuals that are looking at our lives who have not followed Jesus yet, but know we do, who are waiting for us to make a move, who are looking at our lives to see how legitimate is this Jesus. I want to see the way this person lives. See, the way we treat people in private, the way we treat those in society that aren't in the spotlight, the way we talk about others, the way we conduct ourselves, our character, what happens in private, matters. And if you want to make a difference, you have to realize this. You have to realize you can't stand up on a table, get in front of everybody you've ever met and say, hey, everybody, stop being influenced by me. It's impossible. Sorry. You're going to influence somebody. The impact you carry matters. And it's dangerous when you stop to not realize that. And the way you influence others begins in the private. The way you influence, the way you carry yourself publicly is not as significant as personal revelation, as personal transformation. You can't expect to change your city. You can't expect to change your school if you're not willing to change yourself. You can't influence the people around you if you yourself aren't even willing to live up to the words you're saying. I think of this quote by G.K. Chesterton, church historian and theologian. He says, beware of the person who wants to change the world but is uninterested in changing himself. Couldn't say any better myself. So your influence matters. The way you influence people has impact. These leaders didn't realize that. The third and last thing is this, and the, and the band can come back up. It's this, that if you want to make a difference, it's going to cost you something. If you want to make a difference, it's going to cost you something. Verse 10, I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and all the also the interest you are charging them. 1% of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil, we will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. See, if, if you read this, you can really miss it super quickly. Really quickly, because it's jumping between what Nehemiah is saying, and it's jumping between what these leaders and officials are saying. This is what Nehemiah is saying. If, if you go back, he says, I as well, I as well am giving these things to these people. I as well am charging these people interest. I am giving back to them we immediately will change what we're doing and we're going to give them more. We're gonna, Nehemiah takes it upon himself. I don't think people realize this. Nehemiah takes it upon himself to give grain and to help these oppressed individuals out. Nehemiah doesn't walk up to these group of leaders and he says, hey, what you're doing is messed up. You guys need to change that. All right, see you guys later. He says, no, I'm, I'm, I need to do this as well. He's saying, I am giving this. It cost Nehemiah something to do something. It wasn't free. It cost Nehemiah time and energy. I even think it, it cost Nehemiah time and energy to go and to, to go from Persia to Jerusalem to rebuild this wall. He didn't have to, but he decided this matters. This is important, so I'm going to take the time to do it. 
upon myself. I'm going to take the time and energy, even probably the money, to rebuild this wall and help these people. I think so often we can view impact we have, making a difference within our cities, within our school, within just people in our life who need it. We can view the impact, the difference we want to do as almost like an investment on this side of heaven. We can, we can view when we give that homeless person some money or give them a meal. Man, I just, I know I'm going to, I'm going to, I hope somebody just gives me like five bucks. I hope somebody like saw that. You know what I mean? Like where you like got outside the window a little bit more. Does anyone see my license plate? I think of times where it can be so easy to get caught up in even donating money or giving money to a cause or just giving time to somebody that we now are owed something. Oh, it helped him move. He better help me move. I dedicated my time in this area. I better see that time back. Time is money. I think of so often how we have this mindset that it's an earthly investment when we give something of ourselves to make a difference. I love Jesus's words in Luke 14. It's so antithetical to what we think. He says this, then Jesus said to his host, they're having this big dinner. He's turning to this host who's most likely wealthy. When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, invite the crippled, invite the lame and the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. See, if you want to make a difference, you will not always see a return investment on this side of heaven. And Jesus isn't saying, like, don't, don't get scared and say, oh my gosh, I had my mom over for dinner last night. I'm not supposed to do that. No, no. What he's saying is what these people are looking for when they, when they invite people in their house is to get something back. Hey, I, uh, I, this turkey was super expensive. This was like a lot of hummus. Like, could you like host it next time? He says, no, no, no. When you do something for others, do it for those with nothing. Do it for those with less than. But do it in expectation that your heavenly father will reward you, not on this side of heaven. So I think our culture is so obsessed with monetary gain and monetary value. What you get in was what you get, get out, grinding. And so often we, we get caught up in this mindset that if we want to make a difference, we think we just have to simply just donate money. There's nothing wrong with that. Or that we simply just have to repost something on our story. When God's word, and even the story of Nehemiah is very contrary, that something more is required of us to make a difference. That something is more. If, if you want to see those around you come to know Jesus, it's great to pray for them, right? We fight our battles on our knees first, amen? But it's a whole other thing to say, hey, I'm going to love this coworker. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask my professor. It's going to be awkward, and it's going to take time, and I'm late to class, but I'm going to ask my professor how they're doing. I'm going to take it upon myself to where I have some skin in the game. That is no longer just simply a far-off GoFundMe or five bucks I just gave on Venmo. It concerns me now. See, that's where the gospel shines. That's where making a difference for the kingdom of God prospers. It's through relationship. It's through personal investment. And I love this, how Nehemiah emulates this. Even in the Old Testament, God's character is so fluid through this book. See, the thing is this, is here's a gut check. 
a lot of things, my friends, are out of our control. I hate to say that. I, I hate to admit I can't control COVID. I, I hate to admit I can't control child hunger in Albuquerque. I, I hate to admit I, I can't control the crime rate and the DWIs here and this culture of violence we find ourselves in. I, I hate to admit I can't control that. But I don't know about you, but I'd rather do something about it than nothing. If I do nothing about any of it, there's no difference. But if I do something, and I start with where I'm at, that means something. That, that has impact. And, and I'll close with this, and I want to challenge you guys with this. Is it okay if I challenge you? Just kidding, I'm going to do it anyway. Here's the deal. Each of us has fear of influence. Each of us can make a difference within our lives. Each of us are so different and we come from so many backgrounds. Some of you are in school right now. Some of you are getting your PhD, like shout out to you, that's insane. Some of you are working. Some of you are here for a short time and then you're going away and God puts you in Albuquerque for whatever reason, you're still trying to figure it out. But where you are at matters. And sure, you, you can't single-handedly stop the manatees from starving to death. You can't single-handedly stop any hurricane. But within a sphere of influence that you're a part of, you can do something. You can have impact. If you want to make a difference, I believe you can. You may not always see it. You may ask your professor how they're doing and they may just ignore you. You said, okay, I'm just going to, okay, I tried. But I believe that each of us have different giftings and different callings that some of you can do things I could never dream of doing or being a part of. Some of you are a part of different people's lives that I may never meet or touch or be a part of, but you're a part of it. And I wanna challenge you this week to just do something. If you just wanna make a difference, I'm not asking you to find the cure to cancer, I'm just saying, do something. Even if it's just starting, even if you're introverted and you have a hard time talking with people, even if it's praying for that one person you really can't stand at your work, praying for when somebody cuts you off because it's Albuquerque, it's like a greeting here, praying for them. Because here's the deal, each of us, we have different hearts, we have different callings. Some of you, you have a heart for middle school, you wanna teach at APS, that'd be phenomenal. We need more followers of Jesus in APS. Some of you, you, you love doing worship. And each week you show up and you say, man, I, I really would love to be a part of this, but I don't know. It's just not really my thing. But you have that heart posture. You have that desire. Don't reject that any longer. Don't push that down. Where you're at matters. I want to challenge you. I'd rather do something about where I'm at rather than nothing. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to jump back into some songs. Lord, thank you for who you are. Thank you for just the way you want to use us, God. Lord, I pray for those of us who, who have apathy in this room. Who, Lord, we look at the world around us. We look at what's going on. We look at what's transpiring. And we just don't care. We don't really think what we do matters. We really don't think the way we interact with people has an impact, but it does. Jesus, it does. You've made that apparent in my own life. So Lord, I pray for those of us who are struggling with faithfulness, who are struggling with just doing something. God, give us the faith to just step out. 
Give us the faith to just talk with somebody. Give us the faith and the boldness to pursue what we really do believe you've given us the desire to pursue.